Hi, Mary. How are you doing? Good, thanks, Dan. Good. Is it Christmas yet? <laughs> well, the question for you, can we call it the run into Christmas yet or are we not quite on the last lap? Where are we, do you think, on that? I got my Christmas tree yesterday. So for me, we are 100% Christmas. Christmas music. Christmas present shopping hasn't quite started, actually. That's the thing I'm worrying about. But I think once the tree's up, once the lights are up, there's no excuse. It's definitely Christmas. How about you? Okay, yeah. Tree tick, lights tick, music tick. Christmas party has happened. Tick. Yes. So yeah, I think it's an open and shut case. We're in the run into Christmas here. It's official. So Dan, Christmas party. Obviously, I didn't go to the London one this year. What was it like? How was it? It was pretty good. It was pretty good. We got to like this little French restaurant place in Comet Garden, had a bit of a nice sit down dinner with a couple of teams together. Yeah, a little bit of Secret Santa, that sort of stuff. It was pretty nice, I thought. Excellent. And Secret Santa, would you say you were a winner of Secret Santa this year? How did it go for you? I was actually, yeah, I thought I did really well. So someone might have been listening to the podcast because they <laughs> gave me a very nice book that has been on my list, but I haven't actually read, which is the Mark Carney book, Values. Nice. And that made it safely home and I've already started it and I'm going to be reading over Christmas. So Fantastic. shout out to whoever that was. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, they must have realized that it's really, really hard to find a book you haven't read yet. So I'm really impressed that they managed that. Brilliant. So it might be worth actually mentioning this to the readers. We are planning to do a book review episode just after Christmas, using that time off over Christmas to read the book. Not sure, Dan, whether we think that's the right book for it. We've The book is still TBC. So if anyone's got any suggestions for a book to read over Christmas and we'll review it in early Jan, then please send any of those in. We'll probably confirm it next week. And I guess just should we just do a bit of scheduling as well, Dan, just so people know what to expect. So we've got this week's episode. Obviously, we are here. Next week, we've got an episode on China. Looking forward to that. Which should be great. The week after, Dan and I will do a bit of a kind of taking stock debrief. It's the end of the year. Look back over some of our sort of most popular and favorite episodes in the last few months. So that will be a short and sweet one while everyone's kind of winding down towards Christmas. Then we've got a couple of weeks, I think, off, haven't we? I can't remember if that adds up properly. We'll then be off until the first week of Jan. Down to one full week off, actually, because it's the Christmas week that we'll be doing that little wrap up. Then we got the one week off afterwards. And then if things go ahead, OK, back first week of Jan. I'm never quite sure whether people listen to more or less podcasts over Christmas. I guess it depends on how well post-Christmas dinner goes with your in-laws or something, how quickly people get bored. How good their presents are. But yeah. <laughs> how good their presents are, exactly. Yeah. So that's the schedule. Join us. Yeah, should be great. Yeah. And tell us if there's a book you particularly think we should read. Otherwise, we'll be announcing whatever we've decided next week. Let us know. We want all your recommendations for good books for our book club. Great. On with the episode. Cool. On with the episode. Welcome to Investment Uncut. In Investment Uncut, we cut through the noise when it comes to investing. We're digging deeper to try and bring clarity to your investment decisions. I'm Dan Mikulskis. And I'm Mary Spencer. Investment Uncut is brought to you by the investment team at LCP. LCP provide investment advice to some of the largest institutional investors in the UK, including pension funds, wealth managers and sovereign funds. Find out more at lcp.uk.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Investment Uncut. This week, we're having one of those big picture, state of the union, future of the industry type conversations. And we're delighted to be joined by someone that we've been looking forward to speaking to for a while, actually. And that's Maria Nazarova-Doyle, Head of Pension Investment and Responsible Investment at Scottish Widows. Maria, welcome. Thank you very much. It's a great pleasure to be here. Thank you. Maria, that job title sounds like quite a lot of areas being covered. So could you perhaps give the listeners a sense of the role that you have at Scottish Widows? Yeah, absolutely. I have a double barrel name and a double job title as well <laughs> <laughs> to, to match. 
But uh, my role is kind of a dual role, Ms. Gershwitter. So I look after the investment proposition team, where we're tasked with basically defining the investment proposition, designing defaults, fund ranges, investment toolkits for our members. And at the same time, I'm looking after the responsible investment and stewardship team, where the job is to make sure that all our investments are sustainable, we invest in for the long term, we're doing the right things with our active stewardship strategy. And the role is like this, so that there's nothing that's happening in the investment proposition that isn't included. RI is an embedded ESG properly. It works really well as a synergy. That's why I have such a long double job title. It must keep you very busy because usually there's a separate role, isn't there, which I can see the rationale for combining it, but it must mean the role is very large. Yes, it is. Wouldn't lie. Quite busy, keeping me quite busy, but it's the kind of job that keeps you really motivated and interested when you really feel like you're making an impact. So kind of don't notice the hours, I suppose. But also I'd like to say that now it's a double job. And as you said, sometimes in some firms it's two jobs, but actually that responsible investment job shouldn't exist in a few years. So I'll judge myself as being successful if my role doesn't exist and basically I'll lose my <laughs> responsible investment job altogether because all investment jobs already have that embedded. So you don't need that silo approach. You don't need a separate team. Well said. That's a really interesting point to come back to, actually, maybe. But just before we get into the main conversation, Maria, why don't you tell us one thing we should know about you that we wouldn't find on your CV? You probably won't find it in my CV, but if you follow me on social media, you've probably seen a lot. <laughs> Use my daughter as a prop a lot. <laughs> so, yes, I have a five-year-old who is both my understudy, because she's so environmentally conscious. I feel if I got hit by a bus, she could just take my role over tomorrow. <laughs> but at the same time, she's also the reason why I feel so passionate about what I do, because I just have one daughter, but there's lots and lots of kids growing up in the world. And I feel like we do have a responsibility to leave it in a better place than what we found it. Is she thinking about pensions and investments a little bit then? And <laughs> She's just learning how to say biodegradable. It comes out as biodegradio, which actually is quite a cool way of saying it. Yeah, I like it. To be down with the kids of the future, maybe we do need to evolve some of these words a little bit, but we'll see. <laughs> so Maria, where to start really? Because there's so much we can talk about. One thing I want to just hear about just quickly. I know you went to COP26 up in Glasgow, obviously, a few weeks ago. We were chatting before the episode, weren't we? And we felt that listeners probably don't need yet another COP26 review, but love to just really quickly hear some of your thoughts and reflections on what your experiences were up there. I'm left after COP26 probably with more positivity than a lot of people I spoke with. I don't know, maybe it's just my sunny personality. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe it's because my expectations were so low going in, to be honest. I just did not expect anything. I think I was quite down after the PCC report in the summer. I just thought, that's it. We can't possibly do anything where we are. So I was kind of feeling a bit negative and I just didn't expect the governments to do anything useful. So on that kind of backdrop, I feel my glasses definitely have full after the COP because there's quite a lot of positive surprises, definitely very strong messaging coming through, which is what the market needs. So us as investors, that's what we need. We need messaging. We need to see that the governments are actually behind it. This is definitely happening because then that flows into how we invest and how markets react. So I think, yeah, I'm quite reasonably positive and now pushing my expectations into COP27 just to see how much of a strengthening of nationally determined contributions we can get in a year and hope to see quite strong progress there. And does it give you more comfort that words will turn into action? I suppose that's been a concern of mine in the last sort of year or so where there's a huge amount of hype and there's a huge amount of people talking about this stuff but we need people to start actually taking action along the lines of the NDCs and, and that sort of thing. Did this COP give you the feeling that people will actually start to move with this and not just speak about it? 
It did, yeah. So I think in politics, words are quite important. It just draws the line. So having that language and the agreement, you know, so around fossil fuels, that's a first. Again, it's all about like market signaling. And yes, governments are going to have to do their job and kind of get their finger out and start legislating better for it and providing that supportive environment. But actually, a lot of it will be delivered by the financial sector. So having those words coming out from huge, important global players on the political stage is very, very important. And then that translates into action in the market in how investors behave. It's interesting because I felt that people who were there, like yourself, have tended to be a bit more positive about it. And maybe there was something to the fact of being there and just visually seeing all the people, you feel the energy, whereas having not been there, you do see it filtered through the lens of the media or whoever who can spin it one way or the other. And maybe you just don't get a sense of a lot of the ground level stuff that's going on. And you think that all it is, is the politicians getting on a stage and making a speech. Whereas from what other people have said that were there, there's just so much other stuff going on. You do get a sense of that when you're actually up there. Do you know what, Dan? I'm so glad you said that because I've said that before and I just got like funny looks from people. So I thought I'm not going to say it. <laughs> it's actually been then talking to people, looking them in the eyes. So you could see that whether you're talking to like big corporates, financial services, polluting industries, governments, representatives, you can see that everybody's genuinely, like you can sense it. It doesn't come through in a BBC or The Guardian kind of article. But when you're there and you talk to people, I actually felt that I could trust that the words will lead into action because everybody was properly energized. There was this positive energy behind it. People were genuinely motivated to deliver change. That's probably one of the things that gave me the biggest comfort. Fantastic. It's nice to hear you speak so positively about it, I suppose. It's very good to hear. I hope I won't get disappointed. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, indeed. Should we sort of, I guess, move on slightly, but it's very much consistent with some of the stuff we've just been talking about. So net zero transition is a bit of a sort of buzz phrase at the moment. And of course, there's been a lot of talk about the transition that needs to happen over the next decade and decades to come after that. And indeed, there's been a bit more, I've seen more focused discussion in the last couple of months on specifically what does that mean for investors and what actions they need to take. Really interested in your views on where we've got to in that conversation, whether we're doing enough, whether we're talking about doing enough, whether actually there's so much hype that you can't quite see through that into the action or where are we at the moment? I think when we talk about kind of pension funds and investments, we've probably talked enough about it now. So it's definitely time to just crack on and start doing it. And we have about a trillion, I think we've just gone over one trillion of pension assets in the UK signed up to net zero strategy. So we can pledge to have a net zero plan in place out of about 2.6 trillion that we have, which is quite a big development given that it only really started about a year ago in terms of those net zero transition plans coming into place. And we just need to move on to implementation. So it's things like the IIGCC, so Institutional Investors Group on Climate Change. So I'm very conscious of acronyms, so <laughs> trying to avoid them. But the Institutional Investors Group on Climate Change, Net Zero Investment Framework, which is a bit of a mouthful, but actually is a fantastic document. It's this just perfect blueprint of how to implement Net Zero strategy in an investment portfolio. So something like that is absolutely perfect for asset owners, asset managers to just take. It's off the shelf. It's free. There's a huge amount of IP went into it with investors collaborating from different countries to create it. And now you can just take it and apply it to your investments. And that then leads to tangible actions because you're making changes to like how you govern your investments. You're making changes to how you approach asset allocation. You're making changes to your stewardship. You start thinking about, well, how do I actually invest in climate solutions? And what do I do with tangible decarbonization that also leads to real world decarbonization, not just green in your portfolio? It's a fantastic tool and that helps 
frame that tangible action. And I'm sure you've seen this. Lots and lots of asset owners and asset managers have signed up to using it. One of them is Koish Widders. So for the last year, we've been working on a climate action plan, which basically just sets out how we embed in this framework, what are the things we're going to do and how we're planning to get to the targets that we've set for 2030 and 2050. So that's coming out in Q1, so early Q1 next year. And then we're just going to report on it annually because like, transparency is really important as well. So so I want to kind of stake my colors to the mass, say this is the plan, and then just report and say this is how we're achieving it so that it's all clear. So it's clear to our members what we're doing and it's clear whether we're successful in our plans or not. And obviously then over time we'll have to review the plan because things change so fast. We get better data, we get hopefully new regulations. So we might be able to kind of tweak it along the way as well to make it progress with the market. It probably depends a little bit on personality, if I'm honest, but I've heard some people are very comfortable to say, we'll commit to a a target and then we'll work out how we do it because it must be possible to do it. There's this IIGCC document that's fantastic. That means we've got a framework that we can adopt. And then there's others that sort of say, well, I can't possibly make a commitment until I know exactly how I'm going to achieve it. Where do you sit on that sort of spectrum? And do you have any sort of, I guess, guidance for people in that dilemma on steps they can take to get comfortable? I would say definitely on that first part. Obviously, we have responsibilities to our members. So just kind of willy-nilly signing up to like some random targets that we have no idea how we're going to get there is not ideal, not part of the job description. But at the same time, so as soon as we develop the investment case, which was pretty quick, kind of as soon as you develop the investment case for net zero to say, actually, this is how we should be investing, then you don't really need to know how at that stage you can commit. So if you really believe that that's the right thing to do for investment returns and risk, then you just go ahead. Because what happens, and once you set the target, you focus the organization, you focus your teams behind what you need to do. Otherwise, it can take much longer time. And in the absence of a target, I mean, what are you planning for? So you need to draw the line somewhere to say, this is what I'm going for. And then everything just falls into place. And we've seen that happen as Koshwedos. <laughs> we're seeing this kind of a bit mad when we when got out and went out with the targets, but it was on the basis of a very strong investment case. And then even though we didn't know how the targets will be achieved so over the course of last year, now we do. I can't say that we know exactly how we're going to achieve 2050 net zero. I don't think anybody knows, but we have a very good idea of what we're going in the next few years. We have slightly vaguer, more vague kind of idea of what we're going to do beyond 2025, 2030. And then we just have general aspirations of what we think the market will be doing, the economy will be doing, where we will be sort of at the later part of the transition and how we kind of envisage now our net zero portfolio. So how that position will look like, and then we just work towards it. That sounds really interesting. I mean, I've felt that some of the net zero statements have been a bit unfairly maligned because it's like you say that there is a real power to having one kind of overarching, simple to communicate goal that everyone can sort of get behind. And then obviously, it sounds like we're going to see a lot of details coming around that sort of next year. You said Q1 for your plan. Do you feel you'll be among the first of the bigger sort of providers coming out with that? Is that your intention? That's my expectation because we've signed up to the Asset Owners Pledge early February last year. And as part of that, we've committed to develop and publish the Climate Transition Plan within the first year of making the commitment. But we made it quite early on, you know, in the first wave. I'm expecting others to be in that wave as well, but I think it'll be sort of that first wave. Well, having said that, some asset owners have already published, so they're really going ahead. It took us the you know, best part of the year because we have such a vast estate, so to speak, investment estate. So we over 170 billion now, and we have lots of different parts, parts of the book 
that we need to consider. We need to bring it all together. So it took us a bit longer, maybe. But generally, I'm expecting still us to be in that first wave. And I think it's really important because then it shows people what can be done and people can learn from it as well. I'm not saying by any means that our plan will be perfect. We're looking forward to seeing other people's plans so we can improve ours. (laughs) It's actually doing something. And as I said, being transparent about it, I think that's what's going to help drive all of us along because it's not a competitive sport. I'm not going to be like, haha, we won net zero and you lost. That's not how it works. So we all need to work together. Just before we move on from net zero, obviously the term net zero is all to do with focusing on reducing emissions, but there's also lots of opportunities that we might expect as a result of the transition. Do you have any thoughts on I suppose what you're seeing that might be particularly of interest to individual investors in terms of the opportunity space. Can I just double check who you mean by individual investors? Do you mean kind of ISA investors, individual pensions, or do you just mean members of pension schemes? I suppose I'm thinking sort of DC, individual pensions, that sort of where there are members of a scheme who are building up a portfolio for a long time in the future. There are risk reducing elements that you could put through in a portfolio, but where might they be able to capture opportunities? There's two sides of the coin. On the decarbonization side, that's where you're reducing the risk of your investments. But when you invest in climate solutions, that's where you try to capture opportunities. And not just climate solutions, but in your impact type investments and specific kind of thematic investments as well. For example, we developed a fund with BlackRock called the BlackRock Climate Transition Fund. And the way it works, it basically looks at companies in MSCI Global Equity Index and rates them on their climate transition readiness using like lots of different parameters. Then it overweighs towards those who seem to be the winners of the transition and doing the right things and then kind of goes away from the laggards and those who might end up being the losers. So it's just that approach will hopefully, (laughs) no investment returns are guaranteed, but the hope is, the expectation is that that will capture the upside and capture the positive opportunities that come in from climate change and then will also help mitigate risks. But climate solutions, and I'm not sure if you want to leave it till later, if it's coming up, but that's a whole other topic on how we need to invest in climate solutions and how that is a fantastic area of opportunities for additional growth. Dan, I think that's just an episode idea right there, isn't it? So we'll make sure we build that in. It sounds like there's far too much to talk about for this episode. Yeah, exactly. Moving on from that theme a little bit then, Maria, and maybe thinking about that broader element of your role as more of a head of pensions and investment, just taking a bit of a step back and thinking about the industry and how might that evolve over the next 10 years. How's your thinking changing on that in terms of what the industry is going to be looking like in 2030? Well, I hope quite a lot decarbonized by then, (laughs) given all the plans that people are putting in place. But generally for DC investments, my genuine hope is that we're going to see a lot of private market investments. So we know that Australia has about 20% on average in super funds invested privately in the liquid investments. And we're still behind. So we're still young nation of DC. But we're getting there. There's a lot of consolidation going on. The funds just growing exponentially. So we absolutely must get there. Even if you take away the fantastic story of sustainability and how you can invest privately into net zero kind of carbon transition infrastructure, into like lots of fantastic natural capital opportunities, even without that, just generally having illiquid investments, are, it's a fantastic thing for DC savers. So their investment horizon is perfectly aligned with long-term private market investment opportunities, gives them diversification, gives them additional return, given what we expect in public markets to do over the next decade or so I think by 2030, we really, really should be seeing a much larger allocation to illiquid investments that we have right now. Absolutely expecting to see full ESG integration. 
So I said before, there's about a trillion committed to net zero. I'm expecting all pension investments to be committed to net zero. I'm expecting just go well beyond that into capturing social related opportunities as well, more social impact investment. I do think it's all coming, just generally more personalization, I suppose, as well in member comms and investment strategies so kind of helping people make better investment choices. And yes, we, we're so successful with defaults. Everybody's in the default, but partly it's because nobody knows anything about pensions or understand anything about pensions. And I do think generally in 10 years time, we as a nation will be more educated about investment options and people might be able to start crafting something that works for them maybe has a specific impact that resonates with them, maybe has higher risk or lower risk, so it's more suited to their preferences. So I do expect we're not going to see 99% of people in default in 2030, but we need to help them make those choices. And we're not quite there yet. So I think it's still quite difficult to do that. You mentioned Australia quickly. Do you sort of see that as a decent model for how things would evolve? So in other words, a smaller number of much, much bigger kind of master trust style providers of individual people's pensions, basically. I think we're already on the trajectory and I'm sure there are alternative models are available, but I'm quite pleased with that. I think it's good to have this large pool of assets. Then you get economies of scale on fees, you get much better expertise and sort of budgets with teams looking after those investments. You then get access to things like liquid assets. I think that kind of consolidation and large scale really does help. And as long as then there's some personalization available and that kind of hits both angles at the same time. Do you think, Maria, I mean, your comments around personalization, but also the focus on ESG integration. And I suppose I'm just wondering whether potentially that new way of thinking about risk, for example, the way that an individual investor that isn't particularly investment savvy thinks about risk potentially cuts through some of the traditional asset class labels. Do you think that the way we structure DC pension investments, for example, in the future, that the language might change so that we're better catering to people who don't understand exactly what equities versus bonds versus liquids means, but actually their preferences will be based on what they want to do with their assets or their strong feelings about ESG and that sort of thing. Oh, Mary, I really hope so. I think, unfortunately, we're in this highly regulated industry where most of the time our communications are very heavily guided by, regulated by our regulators. So I feel so bad about it as well, because you look at some member communication that you're sending out and you think, this is just awful. If I received it, I wouldn't like it. And yet you can't change anything because the FCA says you have to have this and the regulator says you have to have this. And then by the time you've kind of built it all up, it's not really helping. So I do hope that we're going to move on past that at least a little bit. One thing I've sort of been reflecting on a little bit is I kind of feel that we're obviously in this moment where there's a bit of a switch over between DB and DC. This has been happening for a while and it's going to continue to happen. I think what's interesting is as part of that, there's been a little bit of an absence of kind of genuine long-term asset owners, or you might say universal owners, sort of in the jargon, whereas in years past, you'd have a lot of the larger DB schemes would have been those kind of universal long-term owners really being stewards of assets and thinking more broadly about what it is to be an asset owner. A lot of those bigger DB schemes are obviously looking towards maturity and are no longer sort of in that place. And whereas a lot of DC schemes are sometimes more focused on sort of just providing a set of funds or something, or they're a bit subscale as well. But that's not quite fair because obviously some DC schemes are starting to get up to that scale where they could move into the sort of asset owners of the future. So did you recognize that sort of dynamic? And do you see a lot more of those kind of universal owners kind of emerging down the line? 
Yeah, absolutely. I think we are an example of a universal owner with a huge portfolio, very well globally diversified. We can't operate outside of the economy, so might as well try and help improve it. But I'm seeing that a lot in the markets. DB schemes, as you said, they have the right attitude, but they might not have the assets now, the type of assets to make a difference. So if you sit in there all in guilt, then not much you can do around voting issues, the stewardship or anything like that. We are a member of the Occupational Pension Scheme, Occupational Pension Stewardship Council, or PSC. And on that, it's quite interesting because we have some LGPS representation, we'll have some DB, and we have DC. And DC are generally definitely are smaller, but they are the ones who have the opportunity to actually make more difference around stewardship. I can kind of see DB schemes there because they're kind of passing all the knowledge. So they're almost like passing all the knowledge to up and coming DC schemes because it's up to them now to pick up the mantle. And do you think that translates naturally then? I guess when you're setting up a DC scheme or something, it might feel like you're selecting some funds to put on a platform that people can pick from. To me, it feels like a bit of a mindset shift going from that, from a provider of passive funds, or not necessarily passive, passive or active funds, let's say, to someone who's just thinking with that broader mindset. But does that come naturally, you find? Or I think because we have so many people in the default, it's almost like you're running that one pool of assets with some choices thrown in on the edges. But actually, the main governance responsibility becomes over the default. And we've seen so much improvements in defaults over the years. The sophistication has grown massively. I think people are paying attention when they are looking at this. And again, the bigger the scheme becomes, the more responsible I think the trustees and fiduciaries feel when you have millions of people in default and millions, if not hundreds of millions of pounds. And then definitely you have a very different attitude to something that maybe you're starting from scratch. There was another area we were keen to discuss with you, Maria, and you touched on it in an answer to one of my questions just earlier. But communicating with, I guess, people, but particularly, I suppose, with your role, communicating with members. So you've already talked a little bit about some of the restrictions that are currently in place and hopefully will not be too restrictive in the future. Could you maybe just give an overview of where you think we are with communications and what you'd like to see change in particular? Absolutely. So it's one that I feel quite strongly about that we need to improve. And there's no particular kind of market player pension scheme are very good at this because I think we're all, as I said before, we're all operating in a specific environment. We're constrained by it. So the future has to be in digital comms. So <laughs> I know we say that a lot, but it has to be because that's where you can get more personalization and that's where you can actually get through to people because that's the way everybody consumes information now. So we're probably for a long time won't be able to get away from sending brochureware with complicated language because that's like a regulatory requirement. But we need to supplement that with things that people will actually engage with and read and have a look at it. I don't want it to sound like an advertorial, don't want to spoil your podcast, but <laughs> but there's something that we've just developed that I'm really excited about. So if I could maybe take like a minute to talk about it. Go for it, please. Yeah. Yeah. We love a scoop. We love some new info. <laughs> <laughs> so it's called FYI, Find Your Impact. And we're trying to be quite whimsical about it because FYI, as in you have your financial performance and all this like stuff that you normally see on your app. But FYI, there's also non-financial side to everything that you invested in. And basically this feature that's now coming in next week into the Squash Widows app, what it does, it shows members the non-financial impact of the investments on things like carbon footprint, board diversity diversity and waste management, waste going to landfill. So we're starting with three parameters to see how people react to it. So we've done a survey to see which themes resonate. So we're starting with three, ultimate going back to personalization. I'm expecting it to be a bit like Netflix when you sort of log in and it says, well, what are these things that you're interested in? Oh, it's biodiversity. 
or it's health or something like that, or human rights, then you have that personalized impact. But we have those three and members now can see that at the whole pension level. So it brings their portfolio together and say, this is your pension. This is like the rack status, whether it's good, bad, moderate. It also puts it in perspective. What's carbon footprint? It does give you a number for those who know what that number means, but it also puts it in perspective in terms of miles driven in a car by the way. And it also goes further into educating people, which I think we're also lacking in about the fact that they invested in something. So you can drill down, you can see it at your whole pension level, what the impact is. You can see it at the fund level. You can also then go down into your fund and see individual companies that you invest in and all those ratings, information and the data. So then you kind of start to get an idea of how it all builds up to your overall portfolio. And it's sitting right there, right next to all your financial performance and charges and how much you have saved. It just helps people, I feel, it will help people make more holistic decisions when they're making decisions about their pension, if they think about like moving funds about, or just generally trying to understand what's going on. I think it really will help. So we have that bit, but also has the have your say feature. And that's going back to like communication specifically, which I'm super excited about because up until now, it's been incredibly difficult to actually get to know our members and ask them questions. We run service, they're hugely expensive. Bizarrely, it's more expensive to ask questions from our own customers than it is from just like generic group of people from which we then try and cut out who Scottish Widows customers are. It's just really, really complicated. And now this app will give us direct access to our members who so will be able to just push questions to them. And that could be as strategic as asking them about our stewardship strategy, if they're happy or not, where they want to to take it, which themes they want us to pursue and focus on in our stewardship. Also, we can ask them about specific AGMs that are coming up and ask them about a particular vote on Apple that's happening or somewhere else and just see what they say on that. We can ask them to rank different things because we can't do all of it. So we can try and kind of help prioritize us. We can ask them about what funds they want to see. A women-themed fund, for example, be interesting because we don't have it in our offering. Just us putting it on without seeing any demand is also kind of complicated because then suddenly you have this massive fund offering and nobody's invested into anything. So we'll be able to ask them questions, but we'll also be able to push the information in terms of what we then have done. So if we do this survey and we ask them things, we can then kind of go back and say, by the way, and this is how we voted. And by the way, now we add in this fund. So we're going to have this direct access and we'll be able to actually finally shape our proposition specifically to what our customers really need and want. So yeah, I'm hugely excited. I do hope people will download it, use it. That's another trick. You need to actually get people to interact with their pensions. But I do hope that this thing is so interesting that it will actually drive some interest. It's super interesting. I can really get a sense of your enthusiasm just hearing you talk about it. No, it's really great. You can almost see that it's the early steps of personalization, really, because you could, I suppose, even send different questions and messages to different people. We can do that to different know, schemes. Governance committee can say we want to kind of survey our members on this and we can do that. And then we get all this MI scheme by scheme that we can say, well, this is what your people care about because this is how they've changed funds and this is how they responded to this particular survey. So then they can take that away. Well, helps them understand their workforce better, but also because most of our pensions that will look after corporate pensions, they are contract-based pensions, then the employer will then be able to connect that with what they do at the corporate level in terms of CSR, when kind of people behind it, not behind it, is it translating into their pensions? So I think it's just possibilities are huge. When you describe data like that, it's so powerful, isn't it? So it sounds like a really positive step. 
obviously this kind of tool will be only as good as the data. So we're working with some very well recognized data providers like S&P Truecost for our carbon data. For the geeks in the audience, we're using pickup methodology to be able to calculate the carbon footprint. So it's all very much kind of gold standard. On I love the pickup methodology. I love the pickup methodology. <laughs> it's my favorite. By far my favorite. <laughs> it's my favorite carbon methodology. Methodology. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, I was going to say, I mean, what would be interesting, I guess, is just getting a sense of engagement of your underlying members, clients, and like how many, what percentage are even responding to these questions would be fascinating to see, I suppose, whether you can increase that through time and just get more people interested in it responding in some way. I really hope so, because obviously if you get like two responses, that's not <laughs> enough to drive kind of proposition development and change your strategy. But it's something you can build from. You can only improve too, so it gives you a low bar to build that up. If you think about, so the Lloyd's Banking Group, which we're part of in their app, so we have about 26 logins a month per person. So an average person who uses oh, wow. the banking will kind of log in 20. So it's almost every day people log in into their online bank account. And we now, you may have heard, we now have like Scotiabank's pension added into it. If you're a Lloyd's Banking Group customer and you have a Scotiabank's pension, you'll be able to see a tile in your bank account that shows you your pension, which is fantastic. So I think that's also part of the thing that we need to develop in comms is right now this tool is in the pensions app. So it's very hard work to get people to come to where pensions are, but we need to really start thinking about how do we bring pensions to where people already go anyway. And so it's that kind of thinking about like Lloyd's Banking app, how we can bring more into that. And just generally, I think that's where we're going to win because however fancy our digital pension stuff is, it's still pensions and there's a big barrier to get people interested. But if we somehow integrate it into things that people already look at, then that's going to be a massive win. I completely agree. Well, Maria, we've touched on so many different areas. This next question is probably going to be quite difficult for you. But as we start wrapping up the episode, what's the one thing that you want listeners to take away? I would just probably give some general advice on pensions, I suppose. I don't want people to know how powerful their pensions really are. So while we as kind of scheme fiduciaries, governance committees and investment professionals, we try to do our best to manage the assets in the best possible way, people individually have a lot of power. And there's been different calculations done by Make My Money Matter and by Nordia, but generally it's like 20 odd times more the positive impact if you move your money into a sustainable fund than if you make all those kind of lifestyle choices like traveling less, eating less meat, showering very quickly, which is very difficult with my long hair. <laughs> We're making lifestyle choices to have more positive impact on the environment around us. But at the same time, we completely forget that pension has that much, much bigger impact and we don't really think about it. So generally, I would just say, go check where your pension is invested. And if you're in the great default that's already sustainable, fantastic. And if not, then think about your options, not necessarily move out. Maybe you want to lobby your trustees to make a default green. Have a look if your pension has signed up to net zero pledges. Have a look what they say about ESG integration in the SIP. So just kind of be more active because it's your money and it's making the difference right now. Pensions are powerful. I mean, it's really interesting, isn't it? Make My Money Matter have done a fantastic job of engaging people and perhaps it's signaling a, a big change of individuals and people taking more power over their pension, which I think would be a fantastic thing. But I think the industry is going to have a bit of a shock, to be honest, with that happening, because like you say, you've got to meet people and have those discussions and simplify it in a way that people can actually get their head around it. Whereas I do think there are some people in the industry who are like, oh, no, 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 we can't possibly simplify it sort of thing. This is so sophisticated and complicated that we don't want to let them kind of in on it sort of thing. But I'd push back on that sort of thinking. 
totally agree. Maria, what's one thing that you think is going a little bit underappreciated in investing? I'd say generally how easy it is to start. And I'm not even thinking necessarily about pensions here, but generally I think a lot of us should think more about investing. And I think a lot of people think it's only for the rich or it's too complicated or like you need to have a lot of money to start. But you can start with, I don't know, 50 quid a month going into an investment account and it, it all really mounts up over time. And I think if we kind of could break that barrier, going to be a lot more of us investing for the rainy day in a kind of more accessible way than just our pensions. But I do see there's the widely held beliefs that that's very complicated and you have to have a lot of money to start. I couldn't agree more. So it's the whole think like an investor thing. We do a little bit of work with some of the money journalists and some of the big papers, and they're constantly trying to make that point in their articles. They say, look, if you're auto-enrolled, which is like millions of people, and whatever it is, one in every two people in the whole country, you're an investor, basically, and you should think like one. Whereas that just hasn't been the mindset really in the UK for quite a long time that people will consider themselves investors, but sort of need to. And what better time than a bit of a quiet period over Christmas to start thinking about some of that stuff? Maria, final question from me. Do you have any recommendations for the listeners, books, TV shows, podcasts? So obviously, apart from this podcast, which is great, (laughs) (laughs) I would say if you're specifically interested in responsible investment issues, then talking responsibly is great. I'm sure it comes recommended a lot. (laughs) Yes, it is one of the most frequently recommended that we get. That's always good. That's a good indicator by itself. But yeah, we'll link to it. Yeah. And in terms of books, a great eye-opener for me was Mike Berners-Lee and How Bad Are Bananas? I don't know if you've heard of that, but it's basically gives you the carbon footprint of everything. So you can start thinking and make better choices. And also it's like things like, is it better to wash up by hand or use a dishwasher? Is it better to drink French wine or Australian wine? There's all these things. (laughs) And you'd be so surprised in how maybe illogical the answers seem so you think you can't just figure it out like the australian wine example you think well because they're so much further away must be better to drink french wine because it's so much closer but actually because wine from france gets delivered to the uk on trucks and wine from australia gets delivered in like massive containers on the ship so actually carbon footprint of australian wine is lower than it is for french wine that's excellent. I'm going to buy that for my parents for Christmas. That is an excellent <laughs> Christmas gift, actually. It's a very easy read and it's just so interesting. Brilliant. Well, is it a recent you. one or is it one that's been around for a while? I think it's been around for a while, but he updated it recently with like new information and new carbon data. What I really enjoyed as well is Matthew Sayed's Rebel Ideas book, which again is quite a popular one, but again makes a good Christmas present because it's not a very difficult read, but it just gives you so many good examples of why cognitive diversity, why thinking differently actually adds a lot of value. That is a good Christmas read, definitely, yeah. And that's probably also one of our most recommended books. So again, it's just, yeah, adding the recommendations just makes it more powerful, doesn't it? Brilliant. Okay, Maria, it's been a great conversation today. Really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for your time. No problem at all. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Maria. It's been a pleasure. That's it from us this week on Investment Uncut. But join us again next week for another episode. Take care. Our podcast is for information and marketing purposes only and does not constitute any form of investment or financial advice. For more information, please refer to our marketing privacy policy on the LCP website.